working in restaurants for years, like every chef is obsessed with mortadella. Like, and no customers are, but the, the chefs are. And then you go to Italy, and obviously it's a really important product. It's just like the, the flavor of a really good mortadella, the texture of a really good mortadella is like, you know, just so satisfying. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm senior editor Anna Huesel, and I'm here with editor-in-chief Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, we have Mike Fadem and Marie Tribuya, who are the owners behind the restaurant Ops in Bushwick. Later in the show, I'll be talking to the folks from Yes Please, an extremely cool coffee subscription service. But Anna, tell me about Ops. I love going to Ops. Ops is one of those rare restaurants that has a really concise menu. There are only like, I don't know, maybe 10 items. They really stick to what they're good at. They do a handful of pizzas every night, and they always have one or two of what Marie likes to call room-temperature vegetables. That's kind of her specialty. What a nice way to talk about vegetables. Like, room temp is the best <laughs> temp for veg. But also, they were nominated for a James Beard Award, right? Yeah, the morning that we talked, they had just been nominated for a James Beard Award for their wine program. They have really cool wines. Uh, Mike and Marie picked them all. They're totally unpretentious about it. If you go in and just ask for a glass of wine, you don't have to really know what you're doing. They'll pick a few and you can try them and they'll help you find something that you like. I also love that they have a really cool selection of Amaro's, mm. which is always a good way to end an Italian Washes meal. down that pizza really nicely. It does. Here's Anna with Mike and Marie. Welcome to the Taste Podcast, Mike and Marie. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Glad to be here. You together run Ops in Bushwick. It's a pizza place. How did the two of you come to collaborate, and how did you start working together? Um, well, we worked together for a while at a restaurant called Romans in uh, Fort Greene, Brooklyn, um, part of a, a group that I worked for for about seven years, and Marie for four, four or so. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we worked there together, and then... Working there together, we became friends, and uh, she left to work at a different restaurant in the company. Um, and kind of when this opportunity came up, she was the first person I thought of, and uh, um, we just started like brainstorming, and then just started working all day, every day for the rest of our lives. Wow! <laughs> when you when you made the decision to open Ops, were there some kind of like base non negotiables that the two of you knew you wanted to have on the menu? Pizza, obviously, but what else? Were there kind of staples that you used as starting points? In terms of food or everything? Yeah, everything. I think the wine was also really a priority. We wanted to be a, a nice, simple, high-quality high wine bar with very good pizza. And then when we were trying to figure out what else was going to go on the menu, we were like, well, we really like vegetables, and there's... Not that many places where we can eat some, and if we're gonna, you know, stuff people's bellies with cheese and dough, it makes sense to have something a little lighter on the side. And we're pretty limited there in terms of equipment, so it was, it was actually perfect for us to do something that's very like Italian peasants food, small antipasti plates, pretty much all vegetarian or vegan. Um, yeah, that's those were the priorities. I think were like the wine and some some simple vegetable food to go with the pizza. Mm -hmm. We're also sitting here uh, right now on a Wednesday afternoon, and it happens to be the day that the James Beard semifinalists were announced, mm -hmm. and Ops was nominated for Outstanding Wine Program. How do you feel about that? We feel really weird about it. It's yeah. great. We feel really honored. And there was totally. never even remotely on our list of possible achievements. So Definitely not. It's, I mean, a, it's a, yeah, it's great. I, yeah, I don't know. Who manages the wine program for Ops? Is it the two of you or do you have someone else who makes selections? Yeah, I do most of that. Yeah, well, he's the exceptional <clears throat> wine program person. Wow, congratulations. <laughs> yes. 
I have to ask how you came to choose Bushwick for ops. Well, uh, so in the in the time of me like doing all this testing and working on the pizza and and um, kind of making this whole idea in my head, um, my good friend who I used to work for is this guy Gavin who owns Variety Coffee Roasters, which is um, has become quite a successful little coffee company in New York City. And they started in, in Williamsburg, and I worked for him uh, before I worked for the restaurants. Um, and we've just been friends ever since. And he was offered this space right next to one of his locations in, in Bushwick. And he called me and was like, do you want to do your thing there? You know, I know you've been working on this on this project, and um, let's do it together. So it wasn't <clears> – <throat> I definitely had been out there a lot and really loved the location and loved – the community that was bustling and growing there and thought it was like a cool place to like start something that you know the community might actually want it there because there wasn't really much else to offer um yeah so it just made made perfect sense the space is perfect everything was, was mm-hmm. yeah was do there. you have a lot of regulars just from the immediate neighborhood or are a lot of people coming in from the city so many regulars. So many, yeah, neighborhood yeah. people. I guess now the the proportion is changing a little bit because we, I guess, we've been gaining some attention for people. And again, because as you said, pizza is is very important for New Yorkers. People travel to eat it, but I think most of our clientele is coming from that neighborhood. Yeah, um, so you it's weren't been too great. worried about the L train shutting down. <laughs> Not really, no. no, because if anything, the L train would have been running in Brooklyn still. Right. So it would have kept it would have kept people in Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot of people that travel to get there do it in a cab anyway. Cuz it's kind of it's not that convenient to that many neighborhoods. That's one I mean a lot of people complain to me all the time like oh, I'd be there so often if it was a little more convenient to Cobble Hill or a little more convenient to this neighborhood or whatever. Yeah, unless so you live off the <clears throat> M or the L, which is great. It's already it's it's a already lot of serving yeah, yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. But a lot of people take cars. It's kind of nice that it's a little hard to get to, though, because yeah. I feel like every time I go to ops, I, I don't have to wait too long for a table. It's mm-hmm. not the same kind of like pilgrimage where you're going to a pizza place and waiting three hours to sit down. Right. And it's small so if it was like the same size and somewhere more convenient it would probably be a big problem it would be terrible yeah or, so you guys or people are wouldn't not... care maybe if it, if it was if it was any more maybe people people like that it's so hard to get there I don't know. yeah you're not on the verge of moving to lower manhattan <clears throat> thank god no no, no that's please, not gonna please happen. no, no please we love no. we love our regulars and our neighbors there yeah, yeah. One of my favorite things on the menu at Ops is the mortadella pizza. I think it's the Rojo, mm-hmm. right, with pickled peppers and mortadella. Yep. It's so great. I think before, like, a year or so ago, I had probably never had mortadella, and now it seems mm. like it's on every mm. single restaurant menu. Yeah. Why is that? Why is mortadella such a big thing now? It's a funny thing. It like, uh, ever like, working in restaurants for years, like, every chef is obsessed with mortadella. Like, and no customers are, but the the chefs are, and then you go to Italy, and obviously it's a really important product. It's just, like, the the flavor of a really good mortadella, the texture of a really good mortadella is, like, you know, just so satisfying, I think. Um, it's a little, like, bologna. Yeah, like, bologna comes from it, right? It, mm-hmm. Basically, we're... It's like an elevated and, bologna, I guess. And, yeah. Mortadella comes from like near Bologna, and Bologna is the same word as bologna. So mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. definitely a correlation. Yeah, there's got to be some kind of correlation there. <clears throat> um, and it's supposedly it's also like an extremely hard thing to make perfectly. Like it's like a like a, the the greatest butchers and charcuterie makers like are like heralded for their like mortadellas and like the size and how perfect the texture is and everything. So I think it's something that's just really respected in the food community in the world in that in that world and i think the more like bigger restaurants are willing to like make something with mortadella be like a feature it's becoming more people are realizing it's like it's just like any kind of charcuterie it doesn't have to be like a bad thing where's the best place to get mortadella like as a as an ingredient Um, are there makers in new york or do you pretty much have to source it from italy yeah we get it from a really amazing producer in Chicago called, uh, I think they changed their name a little slightly. Tempesta. Tempesta 
artisans or something like that. Yeah. Um, they make our pepperoni, and they also make the mortadella. Um, it's definitely the best mortadella I've ever tasted that's not made in Italy. Um, it's They're really good at making products that really taste like like they do in Italy, as opposed to like a lot of American products. They try to like do a little spin or a riff or something, which is awesome. But um, with something like mortadella, we really we tried so many different ones, and this one was just so much better than everybody else's that uh, we went with that. Yeah, I love how the warmth of the pizza kind of like gives the mortadella a not really like cooked or mm-hmm. melted it flavor, melted but a little bit. Yeah, yeah it makes like it a little a loose, softer, mm-hmm. more buttery texture. Yeah, yeah, it definitely was. The idea was to make it kind of like a sandwich feeling of eating it um but really to also be pizza and like hit all the other things you want a pizza to have so yeah have you done any other experiments with mortadella or used it in any other cooking we've done some like uh, we like to like chop it up and fry it kind of like you know like fried bologna or you know there's I grew up as a kid. My my mom would always make me fried bologna sandwiches, and it was like the best thing I'd ever had. But uh, so we we fry it and put it into a calzone, which is really cool too. It like gives you like the texture and that flavor, and um, yeah, that works well. It's delicious. We definitely snack on it a lot. Yeah, just snacking on pieces of fried. Just putting it on anything, really. <laughs> I love that. It's good with everything. Yeah. It <laughs> is. Yeah, it's got the crunch yeah. from the pistachios too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another ingredient I have to ask you about is Amaro, because in addition to having an amazing wine list, you guys have a pretty sick collection of Amaros, mm-hmm. and uh, it goes in your chocolate cake, it goes in um, a beer cocktail with Budweiser, which mm-hmm. I've had before. Why Why do you like Amaro so much as an ingredient, as you know, a set of of flavors and even as a ritual? Well, I think we both like bitter things in general and for different reasons. I think that Mike has spent a lot of time in Italy mm-hmm. and I grew up in France and I grew up like right by where chartreuse is made. So we both have a sensibility to regional bitter booze. Mm-hmm. Um, I really miss that kind of flavor because in France it's not I mean now it's coming back a little bit but it took me to live in New York City to actually rediscover those flavors and I think it's wonderful that these distilleries are being represented here Um, it's a whole range of really interesting flavor profiles that that we don't really know about and it gained popularity, obviously. There's now a lot of really great Amaros in a lot of bars and restaurants in New York. Um, so we were interested in maybe offering something a little different, trying to find like smaller distilleries. We also work with a lot of wine importers who sometimes have like a few Amaros on um, their portfolios, as opposed to working with like one big uh, liquor importer who like has all of the major ones. So it was great for us to have access to a lot of, you know, maybe like smaller batches and, and smaller quantities. Um, Amaro's, yeah. And we're always very, very interested in tasting all of them. So, Which one do you use in the chocolate cake that you make? That one is Giorgiaro, yeah, which I think is really... It's the one that's the most balanced, Um for cooking, it 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 hand yeah it it holds really well. It is a it's a flourless chocolate cake, so you need to have a pretty strong emulsion. And this one was the one that like gave a little bit of flavor. It's not too bitter. It's not too strange because if you start using all of that like fernetty like really minty stuff in cooking, it can get a little too intense. Mm-hmm. But that one was really balanced. That's the one we're also using in the Budweiser. Where did that idea come from? That's a French thing. Is it? Um, so in France, we don't have a maro per se, but we have something that's called picon. That's a bitter orange um, l- liqueur or, you know, booze. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, we used to serve it. This, I'm talking like my grand- my grandparents and my parents' generation. But we 
mix it with beer, with like cheap light beer on draft or with white wine. And a picombière was really like a blue collar thing or something that we you know, like my, my, when we were able to like order alcohol in bars, my male friends would always get it because it would get you drunk a little faster. And oh, so just it was a tiny bit faster. <laughs> it's, it's actually really efficient. If you drink two, you're going to be, yeah. you're going to be more than tipsy. It's a whole shot of the bitter. Yeah, it's, okay. yeah. And depending on the bars in France, they definitely like put more or less, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a whole thing. So it just made sense to me. It was nice. We really wanted to have Budweiser as like, you know, it's the king of beers. Yeah. And we had the Amaro and it's nice to make it a little better too. You know, you make it kind of like a slightly sweet, slightly nutty. It's a, yeah. It's like adding flavor to something without that much flavor. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So yeah. F French blue collar tradition. I love that. What's next for the two of you? Are there any projects that you really want to work on at Ops or many items that you want to experiment with? Well, we I just opened a little wine store, so that's going to be like what I'm going to do um, parallel to Ops. What is um, it called? It's called Forêt. It means forest. It's in Ridgewood. It's right by my house. So that's a very small project, but I feel like It is in the continuity of what we're doing in um, at Ops. Um, Are you working same with a lot of orders? Okay. Yeah, same wines, same, not same wines, but same importers and same you know natural wine um, philosophy. Um, we there is an overlap of our customers too, for sure. So it's been it's been nice to have that kind of community in both places. And I think we also want to, we also really just want to make sure. Our restaurant is sustainable and and successful in a way that's not just financial. I think that having this like great family of staff members growing with us has been really important and and making it a long term project that is like thriving and always adapting and yeah, I think that's it takes actually a lot of time. What would you very, say? Very well said. Do you want to open five more locations? <laughs> yeah, are you guys going to be the new Roberta's, like nope. opening up across <clears throat> That's the country? That's definitely not going to happen. Never going to happen. Oh, nope. Yep. No, we're saying it's on the record now, so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is not going to happen. We feel good about saying it. <laughs> no, it's taking, yeah. it's taking a lot of work just to have one. Yeah, and we're like, I feel like so thrilled that we're, we've been as successful as we have been yet so far the location and space we have so just trying to keep it good yeah just trying to keep it good i love that thank you both so much for coming on to the taste thank podcast. you so much thank for, you having, for us. having us here's matt with coffee subscription service and zine yes please Tony Tongs Kinesni and Sumi Ali, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thanks. Really good to be here. Yeah. Thank you for finally having us. Yeah. I met um, you collectively on Instagram because I subscribed to Yes Please and I was like, holy shit, this is my favorite thing. And then we started talking. You're an early adopter. Oh, really? Is that <laughs> yeah. What you okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think you signed up first. in December, like yeah. right when we launched. I got to say, like, I think I found out about it from the LA Times article, which is, was, a, was a cool little thing. Yeah, yeah, that came out of nowhere for us. We haven't really done any press or PR yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think uh, Peter Meehan follows Sumi on Instagram oh, cool. and caught wind of it. And Yeah, it was one of those moments where I just saw Grease Trap liked two or three of my photos, and I was... Yeah, it's like I know who that is, and it was like, oh shit, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what's gonna happen. <laughs> no, he's doing his job out here. It seems like LA Times is really looking good. Yeah. Um, so we are in LA, um, and we are uh, at the end of your weekly cycle. We'll get into exactly what Yes Please is because it's a really innovative concept. But honestly, I want to get started and just like find out straight up the name Yes Please. Where does that come from? Oh, man. Okay. So um, it was a few years ago. It was right after I sold my previous startup, Tonks, to Blue Bottle. Um, and uh, I was, uh, frankly, I was really high out of my mind. 
and um, just kind of saw the name appear like spelled exactly like that in a vision. And I grabbed my phone and I pulled out uh, a yellow pencil in the notes app and I drew something that's not too far from the logo we have now. And I just put it in my back pocket and thought if I'm ever crazy enough to do a business like this again, um, which was definitely not the headspace I was in after, after Tonks, um, that this would be a great brand name and just kind of threw it, threw was it in the edible. Was this a, uh, a big ass joint? Was uh, a blunt. It, it was, it was a combination of okay. things that, that maybe don't get talked about on this podcast. Um, <laughs> that, that might be for a different podcast. Okay. Well, it's but, for but the, it, it, it was, it was a journey. It was a journey. Okay. But so uh, we, we've set up, yes, please. This, this, this name, but really sue me, tell me what exactly are you doing? And like you, you, we were talking before the with taping. You're like, this was maybe not the best idea. <laughs> Yeah, we're we're crazy and um insane and yeah, we I think this kind of came from we were in a position where we were sick of drinking the coffee that was available to us. So we figured we should start roasting coffee again and maybe put it in people's mailboxes again and you know, that came from Tony and I working together in the past. I worked for his old company Tonks and so we knew we wanted to have some sort of editorial. I mean, I'll let Tony it's, expand on that. Yeah, I mean, I think with with my previous subscription coffee company, Tonks, we, we put a letter in every box, and it, it was kind of very high touch, but it was always meant to kind of become more than that, to sort of have like a newsletter or a zine. And, um, and so it was a vague idea, and we didn't really know kind of how how big the shovel was that we were about to start <laughs> right. digging a hole with. Um, and I think, um, you know, Sumi and I had worked together on, on the project of doing coffee for, for local, for, uh, Roy Choi, Daniel yeah. Patterson's. I'd like to get um, into that. We can get into that later. Yeah, sure. Um, and so I think it was, it just felt like this was the natural next thing to do, uh, but to do it in a way that was like small and intimate and bootstrapped. And, yeah. So we're talking about not just like the the weekly subscription for coffee is obviously something that has been around for a while. Yeah. So we can get into the actual roasting and sumi. You'll um, well, we can talk about that. But what is original with yes please is that every week you are given a broadsheet zine that is a very high production value. There are real journalists writing stories that are real. You're not journalists. You're not in publishing. You're in coffee. And you're doing this on a weekly basis. And I got to say, as someone who does content for a living and done it for a while, it's incredibly ambitious. And your execution is really good. So nice job. <laughs> Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. That's the setup. But like, really, like, what the F were you thinking about doing a weekly like newspaper? Yeah, well, we, we sort of felt like weekly was the right cadence for for just kind of putting coffee in people's hands that if you sort of think about um, from a, from a like culinary perspective that having a gap of more than a few weeks between batches doesn't, doesn't really let you iterate mm -hmm. as well. Um, so a week felt like a good cadence yeah. for that a week in terms of freshness in people's kitchen. It felt like we would, if we were doing this every week, we'd be able to kind of fit into everybody's pattern, whether people need coffee you know, a bag every week, a bag every two weeks, bag every three weeks, we'd be adaptable to that. Um, so, so that was a natural. And then, you know, we knew we wanted kind of a newsletter or zine and we started to figure out the physical dimensions of that first and kind of build our packaging concept around that. But once we had ideas for the first few issues and we started talking word count, mm -hmm. it's like, oh wait, this thing is going to have to get bigger yeah and we're gonna have to change our packaging to kind of fit with the scope of the zine and so the trim size i was actually changing the way you were packaging your coffee yeah, yeah. it was it was in in sort of the weight of it so the we weight. we started to look at newsprint and doing stuff on on web printing yeah. and realized like okay that that brings the the weight and the cost down so we can get a little more ambitious and kind of what our editorial budget can be for yeah. each issue and um, and we brought on Amy Marie Slocum, who was at Flaunt Magazine and mm -hmm. um, is a fantastic editor. And she's been yeah. our partner in getting all of this up and running. And she works harder than any of us uh, pulling this off. Yeah, I mean, if it 
if it wasn't for her, we couldn't do this. I mean, we're we're coffee guys, you know. We're like yeah. two degenerates who just like <laughs> landed in front of a coffee roaster. But she's she's really the the ace when it comes to the magazine. <laughs> well, I think it's a really cool collaboration, and 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 really, each issue has a theme. It's yeah. not like you're just doing like Yes Please Weekly with a bunch of random ongoing features. You have to rethink the theme every every issue, which we do issues ourselves at Taste, and it, it's challenging to like fill a page of content around a theme. So how, how are you coming about these themes and what are some of the themes that you've covered with the the journal? Yeah. Well, so every Monday morning we do um, an editorial meeting where we sort of discuss the next few issues and throw out ideas for issues beyond that. Um, and it can start with just a small spark. Um, our uh, issue two was um, a, basically about criminal justice reform yeah. and it, it revolved around um I follow uh, Scott Hessinger on Twitter, um, who's a public defender in Brooklyn, who's been doing a lot of stuff with the ACLU, is really mm-hmm. outspoken. And so, and he, he was articulating things at the forefront of all of these kind of interesting social justice movements. And I thought, okay, that's someone who I would like to read about in a magazine. And yeah. I, you know, and I'm not seeing, you know, outside of like his growing Twitter presence that you know, that anyone was kind of stopping and sitting down and talking to this guy about, you know, where do you come from with this? How did, you know, how, how did you find yourself in this position? And so it was more like, this is something that's interesting to me. And I think, and you probably experienced this too, like being a journalist or having a magazine gives you this license to interrogate reality and ask sort of bigger, more serious questions than you can do in normal day-to-day it's an absolute quotidian. self-serving um endeavor of being a journalist you you learn every single day and you get to ask questions that you never would as a general civilian yeah it's it, you, you get to cross all these boundaries yeah. and so yeah. um so that was like well why not do a whole issue around you know themes of criminal justice reform yeah. and what's going on in prisons and um and and it was easy once we sort of picked that to find three or four more subjects that kind of made sense to include under that banner and um and when you send really good photographers out to yeah, photograph no. people, there, no one says no to being shot by like Daniel Dorsa. Uh-huh, um, I know, and so. it has like a. There's definitely like a level of, of the, when high production value. There's like a level. There's like a gravity to the conversation when you have like that. Um, when you have like something to show them, like a weekly product. Absolutely, and 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 also just the things that you get out of people when you sort of take them seriously, take their work, yeah. their art seriously. They open up in ways that I think. You know, if they were just writing themselves and mm-hmm. and um, in their own voice, they might not. But you write openly about um, yes, please being an experiment. Like this was not something that necessarily you thought maybe in the long term would work. This like this very ambitious editorial ambition to go along with the the weekly roasting, right? Yeah, I think the the first experiment was: can we even pull this off? Like, yeah. is it going to work? Um, and we figured it'll, it'll take us three months to see if, if we can make it work without falling on our face. And we're three months in and we've gotten every issue to press on time. Oh my gosh. Right. I mean, but you know, kind of the nature of this being, uh, I mean, we're like in perpetual launch, right? Every week we're launching a new issue, a new iteration of the Z of the, of the mix. And it's like, it might not work. We, we like, honestly, we could get six months in and then suddenly we're, the well is dry and we, we don't know what to do. So or we're exhausted. <laughs> yeah. We could oh. get tired quickly, but I think it's going well. I mean, uh, it's weird. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of, on the team. I'm kind of like, I'm not well read. I don't really necessarily enjoy reading, you know? So for me, this, the approach of the zine and, and yeah. being a part of our publication I think I have kind of a different perspective on it. Like I've, I've come to enjoy it in a way that like, yeah. I don't have nostalgia for reading newspapers yeah. or, or enjoying something to read with my coffee. A lot of people don't have that nostalgia of the weekly zine. Right. I think it's, it's a very like I'm Gen X and yeah. I think that like we, you know, we came of age before the internet was, was fully baked. And so I think that's sort of like, you know, 80s, 90s zine culture was was a big part of kind of how a lot of us, you know, I, I grew up in rural Indiana. Mm-hmm. Um, Sumi grew up in the Midwest. Like, mm-hmm. As did I. Shout out. All three of us, Midwest. Oh, yeah. Love it. And I think like ma- magazines play a huge role in giving you a sense of like what 
what other things might be out there in the world for you. And, and it's where the counterculture, to use a really generic term, but it means something like where counterculture spoke. Like, yeah, and now that is was Tumblr. Now Tumblr's kind of dead, but it's like Twitter and like it's obviously social media is where counterculture speaks. But before it was like in print. Yeah, and and I think you know the internet has some limitations there sure. that that the little small corners uh, get stepped on or overcrowded or um, you know filled with trolls and oh God. yeah um, right. I feel like there's you know a thirst out there for for an alternative um, and and I think you see there's a lot of kind of boutique scale very high end looking expensive mm-hmm. magazines that have launched. Yeah. We're actually priced a lot cheaper than those foolishly, but, um, but, yeah, and but you get coffee with it too. Yes. How about that? You get, we're talking about only print where there's these high end coffee zines, but they don't give you anything with it. Right. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's our, huh. you know, may, maybe we save journalism by, uh, combining it with, with a, a useful, you joke, like but coffee. it's such a smart and your instincts are so on point. You need for journalism to survive. It needs to be packaged with other things. Right. So and, you want to say something too, I think. Yeah. I mean, the experiment has proven to become a, an interesting place of discovery for me. Right, like it's nostalgic for for Tony and maybe Amy, and like they're infinitely more brilliant and and well read and smarter than I am. But like, <laughs> but like it's great because I I get to learn about things or read about things yeah. or we we start to explore topics for the zine and it's suddenly like I, I'm in the rabbit hole. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm in for this. Uh, you know, inmates training dogs. Like, yeah, uh, I'm deep. So so it's been a, a nice place for discovery. What are some of the themes, Tony? That we've that you've had in your three month run. So three months, that's how many issues? Is that? Yeah, we're so um, like twelve issues. I mean, issue fifteen, 15? Uh, comes out tomorrow, and that's on sort of dating in the digital age. Yeah, um, we started that one off. We were originally going to do just kind of a general romance issue and time it for um, for Valentine's Day, mm-hmm. and it just end up ended up getting shuffled in our calendar, and yeah. um, and then I I. Uh, spoke to Nancy Jo Sales from Vanity Fair, who had um, done an HBO documentary based on her Vanity Fair article about kind of uh, the the state of the apps and digital dating and, and how teenagers are dealing with Tinder and Bumble. And um, and it was this sort of dark look at, at kind of what um, the gamification of dating is doing to, to uh, young people. And so... We reached out to her, and uh, her and Amy spoke, and that mm-hmm. became the centerpiece interview. And we we built an issue around that. I love this style because it has interview as like kind of a, an anchor, which I think is sometimes lost in um, online media, um, where interview the Q and A is kind of dead. I mean, some some places you can find online, but you really leaned into the Q and A. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I think a lot of the new digital media is built around kind of freelancers or people who rightfully are trying to make a name for themselves as writers. And an interview doesn't really, I think, give a writer an opportunity to mm-hmm. kind of rationalize, like it, it, doing a profile where you don't let the people speak for themselves and, and kind of put your own voice in it yeah. um, is, is better for your brand as a writer than um, just asking questions and transcribing an interview. So, um, so I, I think, yeah, maybe there's a trend away from. No, it's nice. I think the New York Times but... Magazine now has um, uh, David Marchese is doing inter- long form interviews previously at New York Magazine. So there is a little bit of a resurgence of the Q and A style. But I like that you are picking subjects and people who maybe aren't celebrities, but you're going longer with the Q and A's. It's, it's very smart. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it would be great if we, you know, interviewed some celebrity that would give us uh, a tremendous amount of press and new customers and um yeah. you know i wouldn't say no to that but i think it's it's more that um you know i mean as as people who hang out and have worked in coffee shops for mm-hmm. years it's you meet so many interesting people yeah um and i think you know the people that are in front of you or behind you in line at at the coffee shop or the grocery store there's there's stories there and working in the service industry you start to learn some things about people Mm -hmm. it's like there's you know everywhere around you there are amazing stories let's talk about coffee sumi because um we've talked a bit about the journalism behind yes please but 
uh, you've, uh, I, I think you've taken a really unique approach to the subscription because I'm finding a lot of subscriptions are single origin, but you're doing something different. You're calling it the mix, which is obviously taking a mix of, uh, of coffees that you're roasting, um, but to work in concert with each other each week. So that's my perception of it as a subscriber. I've, I've enjoyed many of your coffees, but talk about the, th- the, the process behind the mix. Yeah, I mean you you've got it right. We kind of I tend to think of of blending as like a mixing board, you know, and we're just manipulating levels of lows and highs and mids and and just trying to get it right and each song can sound different. Every time we get in the studio, it's a different session and a totally different feel. And you know, we we kind of came to the conclusion that we really believed that there's no single coffee on the face of this planet that couldn't be made better by blending it with other really good coffees. If we're really thoughtful in how we roast mm-hmm. and intentional with how we're blending and care a lot, you know, and th- this is partly why we have one product yeah. is because we could put all of our energy seven days into one blend. I mean, like the brake screeching sound, which I can't attempt, but like <laughs> that statement right there is controversial. I feel because I think a lot of um, roasting, um, a lot of uh, coffee companies will focus on origin as being pure and origin being like singular, single origin as being the way that they want to think about coffees. And I think I think there's a place for that. And, and we, we did that for years, too. Uh, you know, the focus on single origin has been like a big cornerstone of transparency and being respectful of, of the coffee and kind of building the, the following of specialty coffee. And I think we're at a point where we can still use those coffees and be respectful to them and be respectful to the people who are working hard to get them to us, um, but use them in a way that's different and, you know, combine them with other coffees that make them better than the sum of their parts. Uh, You know, I, I got sick of drinking one coffee that, you know, is the same every day, day after day. And we find ourselves often at coffee bars drinking delicious coffees and thinking to ourselves like, wow, this is nice, but what if we added a little bit of Peru or, oh man, this is just mixing, this is just missing a little bit of this coffee. And it's, it's like, we've now hard coded ourselves to think that way, but it it's, I think it's more of a, a, a function of logic than, mm-hmm. than anything else. I don't think we're like revolutionaries. It's just, it makes sense. Well, there's been blends that have always existed. Of course, a lot of the large coffee companies, like Hologram is a blend, right? Absolutely. From counterculture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's nothing new about it. I think it's it's more just saying that, like, what if what if this is the front burner yes. project? That that there's kind of this, you know, Alice Waters, Shea Panisse, you know, here's the perfect carrot. You know, you want to taste the terroir. You want this this clarity and transparency in, in what your experience is. And... And I mean, we love that. We embrace that. But I think, you know, once once you've established that that's something you can do, then, you know, why not sort of take your gloves off, get and your work, hands dirty and work it and play with it? It's um, kind of like the difference between Italian and French. Like Italy is like all about the beautiful tomato, all about like a plate in the, in the sun of like with basil and mozzarella and tomato. And then you got France, which is like, let's cook the shit out of something. Let's make an ugly potato into a beautiful thing let's add a lot of butter let's add some time i, I just see this com- comparison yeah and, and and i think that's the thing is like embracing technique and not feeling like like i think the 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 trend among coffee professionals has been to to tiptoe around these things and be very delicate about how we how we even talk about coffee how we handle coffee and and for for good reasons but but i think it's it's a little bit of an overcorrection that we we've become puritanical about things and and more concerned with with uh expressing something intrinsic about each coffee than with like how it actually tastes or how how people are experiencing it yeah i mean that's totally right i mean we 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 think about it as every week we're building a new dish right so we go to our farmers market which in cases in our cases are Rolodex of really great importers and partners and producers and, you know, people like Ryan Brown, who's our green coffee advisor, you know, we get to reach into his Rolodex as well. And every week we see what's available. We build a dish, we publish the dish, uh, 
and then we throw the menu away and we start over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the mix is changing every week. Every single that, week. That, and I'd like to talk right now about the economics between single origin and mix, because I think the mix is clearly some advantages. You can charge less for this coffee because it is using a variety of sources is, is that's my perception the, theoretically i think that's <laughs> i think that's kind of everybody's assumption but in terms of what we're paying for green coffee um yeah. that that hasn't been the case um i think we we kind of went through this with the coffee program for local that yeah. everyone assumed like okay they're doing a blend and there there must be some corners that they're cutting to get the coffee this cheap and it's and it's really no it's just that we're only doing one thing and we're trying to do it at volume and we're eliminating waste um we're not doing a whole offering list and that gives us some advantages for controlling the costs that don't involve cutting corners on what we pay for the raw material. Yeah. I'm so I, that is, I'm glad you cleared that up because I feel like that is the perception in the industry that when you, when you blend it's cheaper and, but you're not, but you've clearly thought about price a lot with both your initiative with local and also with the price point of yes, please, which is, very affordable for what you're offering. So talk a little bit about the cost structure for Yes, Please, and then maybe a little bit more about local. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think we're still trying to figure out the cost structure. We we intentionally crippled ourselves on margins a little bit because um, with my previous startup, uh, Tonks Coffee, we had some venture backing. We saw that there was this huge sort of untapped opportunity for um, – a company that really focused first on the home consumer. And we had to have a certain margin uh, to be able to spend money to acquire customers and kind of get on the treadmill of, mm-hmm. of you know, paid growth and sort of your traditional direct consumer marketing stuff that everybody's doing. And Pump a lot of money into Facebook. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I think that that's, you know, there, there's kind of a moral issue for us that um, th- there's kind of a moral issue for us where, uh, giving, you know, you look at all these direct to consumer brands that everybody's familiar with, you know, from your dollar shave club or different shoe companies or whatever. And they're all giving a huge percentage of their top line revenue to Mark Zuckerberg mm-hmm. and to Google to exist. And we thought, well, okay, well, if we price ourselves in a place where like that's really not something that's going to work for us. And we're just going to live and die by the quality of the product, by making our customers happy and by word of mouth um, and, and by making interesting content that lets us kind of expand our audience by actually doing things that are legitimately interesting uh, to them. That is the way to grow. Content is going to grow this audience and coffee is going to grow this audience. It's not going to be an ad shoved in your face. Right. Love that. Also, I like if you look closely in the credits, you have like your Instagram account, you have your Twitter account, and then the Facebook, it's like never Facebook or quit. We quit right, Facebook. Delete Facebook. Delete yeah. Facebook is your friend. <laughs> I love that about it. you're like straight up being super transparent. Like Facebook is not our friend. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's also, it's, it's, um, you know, there, there's the moral case for it, but then there's also the, the amount of energy that it takes yeah. to be on that hamster wheel is, is excessive. Sumi, I wanted to talk to you about coffee in terms of, how do we know when coffee is good and how do we know when coffee is not good? This is a question we grapple with with the taste coffee issue and uh, and have always talked about because I think there's a lot of variables in play when you're talking about uh, quality, you're talking about roasting techniques, you're talking about home brewing techniques. There's lots of variables that kind of can throw things off. But how do we how do we think about this? This is a good question. <laughs> I think I think it would be easy to go into the rabbit hole on this. So uh, I'll try to to do my best to uh, articulate what I what I'm trying to say but for for me it's it's an easy question I think the person who's living with a bag of coffee in their kitchen and having it day after day or a couple couple days every couple weeks you know or starting the bag and finishing the bag those are our real experts and we're guilty. We've participated in, in this crime of not building enough on-ramps for people to be enthusiastic about coffee. You know, we've kind of put up borders and walls and told them, like, uh, we're the experts, trust us. Um, and I don't know if that's true. I mean, I think if something tastes good to you, then it's probably good. And it doesn't need, you don't need an education or a you know, certified letter from a barista to tell you that you're doing it right. I mean, just add 
change out the beans. And if you like the result, then you're probably using better beans. My issue with that, I think it's super on point. I think there are a lot of, it is a rabbit hole. We can't answer this now. But my main question is, is about the technique at home as a home brewer and the idea of like many people don't have a technique. They don't have a digital scale. They don't have a proper setup and they're making coffee differently every week. So how do I know if something is super diluted and is not diluted in like a, in a, in an automatic machine or if you're out of the Chemex, you know, you're over extracting, like how do you grapple with that? Right. Well, I, I think that that's part of why we, we try to be really, give empowering messages to our customers and let them know that they can reach out to us and, and get advice and, and you sort of meet people where they are. So if, if someone has, you know, a blade grinder and a cheap Mr. Coffee machine, you can kind of express to them a little bit, like how to figure out like what a good ratio of how much coffee you should be using and how to use the grinder. And, and it's not so much about like they can make a perfect cup tomorrow, but can they make a cup tomorrow that's significantly better than the cup they made yesterday? And that's the Delta. If, if you can get people to make an improvement that's big enough that, that they notice it and then they feel empowered, like, okay, there's, you're, you're taking the next step on a path towards, better and better really well said do you are you going to use the weekly yes please platform to talk about coffee because it's it's noticeable that coffee education is not really what you're trying to do right now in these early months of the zine yeah we we've started with the next issue there's going to be a coffee column in every issue that's going to jump around to i love that a bunch of different topics um so we can talk about like we're doing an issue uh soon that's about sort of culture and fermentation um we're going to talk to yeah. uh Kwang e from Baru yeah. um as as our cover story um and so that's an opportunity for us to kind of talk about fermentation and coffee and how that affects flavor and give people a, a grasp of that um but i i wanted to kind of break the fourth wall here and say that yeah. that um to to sumi's point um there there's you're you're unique among journalists and and stepping into this coffee universe and with, the, with some armor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but that's the thing is you, you feel that you need to be armored. And I feel yeah. like when you look at any other culinary pursuit that, that you step into, you're very confident about your opinion, but we've created the situation where we're even food journalists, you know, the great Jonathan gold, like all of these people who write eloquently about every other part of, of the culinary landscape, when they talk about coffee, they're afraid to say the wrong thing, the way that like I would be about wine or... You, you brought up a, a really great cognate and parallel, the wine journalism community, because I think it's similar, um, but also it's not, because every, way more people drink coffee and live coffee, so we want to write about it more as journalists. And thank you for... for acknowledging that because i think there is like a third rail element about coffee and food writing and a lot of people avoid it or people will yeah or, or they've come in and we've, yeah. we've pushed them out that That's... they that they hit a wall where they feel like they've they've talked to everybody they can they've explored the landscape they've they've heard from all the experts and at the end of the day they still don't feel that that they have an educated enough palate to say if a coffee is shit or shinola right and we think we think our customers know what shit and sh what shit from Shinola. I mean, we I really think I could serve my mother two cups of coffee, one very low grade commodity coffee, instant coffee, and something nice, and she'd be able to tell me this is better. Yeah, P Peter Giuliano um, ha has who's who's a longtime uh, coffee thinker, um, great spokesperson for mm -hmm. what's been happening in coffee. Um, Peter has this line. Uh, I'm paraphrasing that. You know, most people can can do the Pepsi challenge. They can taste the difference between Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola side by side. Like, it's a noticeable difference. The difference between even the most subtly similar single-origin coffees is a bigger delta than the difference between Pepsi and Coke. No one needs to have an educated palate to be able to taste coffee or beer or wine. Mm -hmm. It's the it's the jargon, it's the language, it's the the sort of taxonomies around the it. The taxonomies are... is a key part because I think coffee comes in many different ways to the end user. There's filtered coffee, there's espresso, there's cold brew, there's instant, there's from the cart, there's from the Q, the K cup. You know, you've got all these different ways the end user 
With wine, it's like pouring a liquid into a bottle with a label, and that's it. Yeah, but also with wine, it's it's yeah. So so with wine, you're you're dealing with a product that if if I drink the same wine that you had six months ago, and and you were on you were in New York, I was in Los Angeles, we could have a conversation about that wine, and both know that we're talking about the the same experience, the same product. It's right there with with coffee, it's so ephemeral, it's so slippery that yeah. you know I could say, hey, I just had this Guatemala from Stumptown, you should try it, and you go next week and you buy a bag of it, you brew it in a different way, you have a different experience. It was a a different guy working at the roastery that day who did that batch, and we don't know if we're talking about the same coffee anymore said better than me exactly that's the biggest challenge about trying to write and talk and think about coffee from my point of view right and so then writers are prone to grab onto these kind of second and third order signifiers about like you know they they talk about the the espresso machines or the amount of money that was spent on on brewing equipment or or the architecture of the space and you kind of get all of this window dressing being part of of how people are supposed to tell the difference between good coffee and bad coffee yeah. and not just reinforcing the idea that no people should trust their own palate like you might have paid six dollars for that cup but if you don't like it it's probably because it's not very good yeah we we try to lean into that. We try to lean into the fact that coffee is ephemeral and that your experience is going to be different than my experience. And, you know, a lot of times we're, we're tasting coffees right out of the roaster, super fresh in the cupping lab, you know, kind of a controlled environment. So when we sit down and write the label or, you know, I start to write the copy for what the coffee, the label that's on the coffee bag, I intentionally don't want to tell you what you're going to taste. I want to be transparent and let you know what my intentions were and give you a general sense of what this blend is going to be like and what coffees are used and have fun with that and be playful with that. But I don't think I should tell you what you taste. The real question I want to know is, do you enjoy it? You like it? it. I wanted to come back and talk about local because, you know, local talking about experiments seemed like a bit of a failed experiment, but a noble experiment. And we, I don't want to really get into the politics um, of the, of the company, but I do want to talk about when local launched, it was very clear that they wanted um, to work um, with a reputable coffee roaster and make a $2 cup of coffee. Is that two? Uh, we actually, we did it for a dollar. $1. Yeah. Sorry, I knew it was a lower than average, but this is $1 cup of coffee. Um, so let's, I just like to hear a little bit about that, that challenge of creating a $1 cup of coffee. Was it a challenge and your general experiences with local? I think it was a challenge, but, um, really the, you know, to, to lift the curtain on kind of how, how we pulled that off to the degree that we pulled it off. I think it was Sumi had been, uh, figuring out his own cold brew recipe for a while, um, and sort of crack the code that ended up making it work. Yeah, I mean, it was it was kind of multiple parts. The first part was, let's put the coffee brewing stuff in the kitchen. Like, this is a cook's job. They can taste, they can prepare. This is, there's no reason for us to hire a barista or pay someone dedicated to just babysit coffee. That was part of it. And the other part was, we had no waste. In the entire time that local existed, there wasn't a single bean or a single ounce that was thrown away. And part of the way we were able to do that, part of how we were able to do that was the cold coffee recipe was partially a cold brew concentrate, but brewed in a way that was cut with hot coffee that had been chilled. So we, we from the beginning, wanted to create the, the menu to self-serve itself so we would never have any waste. it would always recycle it was almost absolutely. like it was like a sourdough recipe it kept recycling yeah. absolutely so it was, yeah it's kind of like a mother like mother, a mother yeah, yeah situation and because there so was smart. no no sodas on the menu it meant that um to our surprise and delight uh everybody was ordering cold coffee drinks all afternoon so the um, only caffeinated beverage was called cold coffee right and so that was a huge hit um and sumi and roy worked to make this sweet mm-hmm. and creamy version of it that um people yeah dug. yeah we made this sweet and creamy um version of the cold coffee which was kind of inspired by cafe dolce and little tokyo um they have a dulce latte and it's just like this sweet and condensed milk delicious so we riffed on that made our own version of that roy and i and yeah, those are, that was the menu. 
And what's the, what's the future of this $1 cup of coffee? Because Local Now is not really operating. Again, we won't get into the future of Local, but I, I want to know, is this idea still alive? I I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I would say the idea of local is, is still alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, uh, you know, I think, I think Roy and Daniel haven't, haven't given up on, on finding a path to, to, to kind of keep that in the world. Um, I think dollar coffee, we got a lot of press around it. It generated some controversy inside of the coffee industry. Um, I think in a good way, because it kind of made people, um, question some of their assumptions about, the context for good coffee, the audience. And, and again, like, you know, is it wrong to give somebody something that's that good, that delicious, that ethically sourced, that well roasted, that sort of cared for, um, for a dollar when, you know, the rest of the industry and, and, you know, and really us and our, and our own coffee backgrounds have been trying to push the price in the other direction for very good, legitimate reasons. And I think that, you know, when you look at, kind of a, a croissant or, you know, a, any, anything that's like a pleasurable culinary experience. I think the the price and quality don't, don't, it's not a one-to-one relationship. There's, there's very different contexts and economies of scale. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think, I don't know if anyone else could or should do it. I think most, you know, fast food restaurants or quick service restaurants, beverages are where they make a lot of money. So to have something where, you know, your margins are kind of that, uh, that tight is, is not, not wise. I wouldn't recommend anyone else try it. Yeah. (laughs) But I think for, for the way that, that they were approaching the menu and, you know, when, when they first sat down with us and kind of gave us the challenge, like, do you think that this could work? Um, I being, you know, uh, evidently not so good at math, um, <laughs> said, yeah, but hmm. you know, you'd probably have to be roasting it yourself and, mm-hmm. you know, get really vertical with it and, um, you know, and, and reach a certain scale. Last question. I wanted to talk about the idea of the subscription because I think it's really smart. It's clearly the future for a lot of, uh, commerce in, in, uh, in journalism, uh, we're, we're New York Times is a great example. Like journalism is kind of going the subscription route, but also with food, with like the meal kits um, still being viable. And then uh, with coffee, of course, uh, you know, it's part of coffee, you know, the life of coffee. I mean, the, the world of coffee is revolves around subscription. So like, how are you going to innovate with subscriptions and what is the future of Yes, Please in general? Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not super bullish on subscription coffee, to be honest. Um, I think when you know when tonks coffee was kind of the the leader in the space i still felt we we were a very small business it was still nascent and you know over the years i've heard you know the figures for a lot of other third wave shops um subscription programs and none of these are like a breakout success like they're not on the scale of other direct consumer subscription products uh at all um i think that coffee is a drug. Um, no one is running out of their fix. People are, if if you're addicted to heroin, you're not going to forget to pick up heroin on your way home. Um, it, it's not solving a huge problem to get coffee into people's hands, especially now where there's, you know, uh, grocers are starting to stock better coffee. It's, it's, it's a different landscape now. So, um, I don't think we're, you know, we're curing polio by, <laughs> by putting coffee in people's mailboxes. So I think for us, it's, you know, can we do this at a, at a more boutique scale and make it work with that and not necessarily have to have the ambitions of, ah. of being the category killer Repre- in some appreciate huge market. The honesty there, because it's rare, it's rare for a startup to actually have the kind of honesty about not trying to scale. Yeah. And, and I, that. and I see other people who I, I think there is a huge opportunity out there. I've just not seen anyone crack it. And I'm watching other companies raise a tremendous amount of money and hire people and try to build out, um, try to build out these, these teams to, to tackle the opportunity. And, and I think it's just, it's a bet that, you know, we're, we're fortunate. We've stepped on many of the rakes already. We kind of know the cheat codes. So, um, we have an unfair advantage and I think it lets us take risks in other places that are more interesting to us no, than clearly. risking it all on, you know, 
hiring somebody for a six figure salary to sit there and tweak the Facebook algorithm all day to try to find new customers. We're so into Facebook. I love it. And Sumi, where do you want to be in two years from now? With yes, please. I hope in everyone's kitchen. Um, but I mean, like Tony said, we're, we're, we're bootstrapped on purpose. You know, we, we get to be militant because that's a smart thing to do for our business. And we are allowed to have a relationship with our customers because of that. So if you write in, it's Tony or I who are going to respond to you. Uh, that's it. We have, we have a few people on our team and we get to be small and talk to everyone. I hope that we could grow our team and, you know, pay people really great wages and have a, a small and scrappy team that does this at a much larger scale. Are you going to sell uh, boxes in, in, in like in stores in yeah, retail? Yeah. Tomorrow is our first day of kind of a, a beta test of that. So, um, we have, uh, about, um, seven stores, uh, that were sort of testing yeah. the packaging and, and it's a, it's it's an unusual product, so I think you know it requires some some handholding or explanation for people to understand what it is the first time they see it, um, and yeah, I, and we'd like to roll it out nationally. But you you nailed the name from a from a haze, <laughs> and the coffee's dope. So congrats, thank, thank you. you, and I wish you all extreme luck. I, I'm a huge fan and a paid subscriber, and I will continue. I think I might be opening it to uh, maybe. Week weekly, I might do it. We're okay with that. We're cool. okay with that. Very okay with that. Tony and Sumi, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis. Studio recordings by Pat Stango. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.